Amen. It was July the 5th, 1775. That's when John Dickinson drafted a letter which has come to be known as the Olive Branch Petition. And while you might be thinking, I thought John Dickinson was the lead singer of Iron Maiden. No, that's Bruce. Uh, Bruce Dickinson is the lead singer of Iron Maiden. Uh, John Dickinson drafted a letter back in 1775 known as the Olive Branch Petition. And and listen, the Olive Branch Petition, uh, which was adopted and signed by our Continental Congress three days later on July 8th, this actually served as an appeal to King George III for a redress of colonial grievances. You see, our founding fathers just didn't go to war. You know, they, they, they tried to address their problems, they tried to address their problems, they, uh, they, they did their best to, to solve everything peaceably, and, and this was the final attempt, July 5th, 1775. And while several attempts, like I said, had already been made by the leaders of the 13 colonies to avoid war with Great Britain, uh, the letter, uh, this was the final olive branch, so to speak, which is why it's come to be known as the Olive Branch Petition. And this was offered by our founding fathers before the Declaration of Independence was then put forth a year later. And and while the Continental Congress sought conditions for making peace with King George III, well, King George III was a tyrant. He wasn't interested in peace. He preferred war, and that's what he got. It was a year later after the Olive Branch petition was sent. Uh, It was on July 4th, 1776, when 56 of our American founding fathers representing 13 colonies, they gathered together in order to declare their independence from the tyrannical rule of the British Empire. And and while the original intent of our founding fathers was to declare our independence from the dictatorial rule and religious system of Great Britain, we must understand also that it was never their intention to declare independence from the God who created us. They're declaring independence from King George III, but not from God. And to prove my point, let's just take a moment to read a portion of the declaration that we celebrated yesterday. And and it begins like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These are nodoi statements, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Now, as we consider this excerpt from our nation's Declaration of Independence, I should point out here that we don't see a group of political leaders who are demanding a separation of church and state. That's that's nowhere found here, nor is it found in any of our founding documents. They weren't demanding a separation of church and state. No, instead they were basing their independence from the rule of Great Britain on the unalienable rights which are provided by the God who is our creator. Now, as we consider this concept of our divine or God-given rights, we should take a moment to ask about the identity of this creator that our founding fathers were appealing to. 
the reason I, I, I want to take some time to think about this is, is because, you know, many of the modern historians in the 20th and 21st centuries, they've actually engaged in some level of historic revision. In other words, the secular historians who end up, you know, uh, creating our high school and our, and our college textbooks. They've actually revised our nation's history so that they can present our founding fathers as nothing more than a bunch of masons and deists and atheists and racists and otherists. And while I would never argue that all of our founding fathers were Bible-carrying uh, Bible Christians, I am happy to tell you that the majority of our country's founders were clearly committed to the cause of Christ. In order to prove my point, let's consider the beliefs of our founding fathers who placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's begin with John Hancock, who not only signed the Declaration of Independence, but he also served as the governor of Massachusetts. And John Hancock was once called, uh, you know, uh, he actually called the entire state of Massachusetts to pray. That's right. He actually called the entire state that he was the governor over to pray and he did this by declaring this, and I quote him here, that all may bow to the scepter of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now, as we consider what John Hancock directed the people of Massachusetts to do here, it'll help you to know that the word scepter here, it refers to a ceremonial staff carried by a ruler as a symbol of their sovereignty. And so according to John Hancock, Jesus Christ is the one with the ultimate scepter. He is the one with the supreme authority or the sovereignty overall. Not only that, but it was during a proclamation for a day of public thanksgiving when Hancock prayed in this way, and I quote him, the, king, the, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. So, so he's, he's praying before people, he's praying publicly about the kingdom, not of uh, America, not of the 13 colonies, he's, he's praying about the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that it may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. And he also encouraged every person to confess their sins before God and implore his forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. From this, we can see that John Hancock appealed to the unalienable rights given by our creator. You know, when John Hancock is signing this Declaration of Independence, and, and, and it's about this creator who's given us unalienable rights, clearly, John Hancock believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Clearly, John Hancock wasn't a deist. He, he wasn't an atheist. No, he was a, a Christian. I also want to consider the faith of a man named Benjamin Rush. You see, Benjamin Rush not only signed the Declaration of Independence, but he also can, he's also considered to be the father of public schools under the Constitution. And now, as the father of public schools under the Constitution, you might think that this government official would be opposed to using the Bible as a textbook in public schools. And yet, to the contrary, Rush not only approved of the Bible as a textbook for our public schools, he encouraged the use of it. Here's how Rush put it, and I quote him here, The only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. 
according to Rush, the only way to maintain our more perfect union here in America was through the biblical instructions that present our youth with the principles of Christianity. And just as he warned, the removal of the Bible from our education system has actually created a country filled with people who don't really understand the fundamental principles of our nation's liberty. They don't get it. Why? Well, because they haven't been given the textbook, so to speak, of, of why we have unalienable rights. Benjamin Rush also wrote to a friend, and he, and he said this, and I quote him here, I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am, I am as satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. So he's saying, hey, the, the Constitution that we hold to, it's not on the same level as the Bible, uh, it's just a little bit under it, though. <laughs> He's saying it's, it's as miraculous as the Old Testament miracles. From this, we can see that this man who signed the Declaration of Independence also believed that our Constitution was divinely directed by the God of the Bible. It's for this reason that he not only encouraged kids to learn the principles of Christianity, but he also encouraged every person to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually in his autobiography. That's where Benjamin Rush writes this, and I quote, The gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they who are enabled to obey them in all situations. And then he continues, My only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his Son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Huh. I wonder what he believed. Who can say? Who knows? Actually, Rush here is quoting from Acts chapter 22, verse 16. He's quoting from Revelation 22, verse 20. And at the same time, he's helping his audience to understand that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only way for sinners to be saved by the faith of Christ Jesus. And with that being the case, he also prayed for the soon return of God's only begotten Son. Therefore, it seems obvious to me that Benjamin Rush believed that our unalienable rights were given to us by the Creator who is clearly seen in Genesis chapter 1. Now, for the sake of time, you know, we don't have time to, to look at all, all the guys who were Christians, but uh, I just want to consider a few more uh, of our founding fathers. Uh, just uh, very quickly, there was Robert Treat Payne, who was not only a military chaplain, but he was also a judge and the attorney general of uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and this founding father who signed the Declaration of Independence, he once declared this, and I quote him, I believe the Bible to be the written word of God and to contain in it the whole rule of faith and matters. Uh, I'm sorry, manners there. And, and then he says, uh, uh, so, so he's, he's calling the, the Bible the word of God here. And, and then later on in his last will and testament, that's where Robert Treat Payne took the time to declare this, and I quote him again, I am constrained to express my adoration of the Supreme Being, the author of my existence, in full belief of his providential goodness and his forgiving mercy revealed to the world through Jesus Christ, through whom I hope for a never-ending happiness in a future state. Now, I don't know about you, but this to me doesn't sound like the words of a deist. It certainly doesn't sound like the words of an atheist. This is a Bible-believing Christian who placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
How about Roger Sherman? Uh, he, he was not only a signer of the Declaration, but he was also a master builder and signer of the Constitution. He was a framer of the Bill of Rights, and not to mention a, a judge and a U.S. senator. And Sherman here once declared this, and I quote him, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do not repent and believe shall be saved. Now, uh, I'm sorry, I I got that wrong there. He he has assured us that all who do repent, (laughs) let's let's correct that. He's assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. So Roger Sherman here preached salvation in Jesus' name alone. And in order to make his case, you know, Sherman goes on to insist, and I quote him here, God has absolutely promised to bestow them on all these who are willing to accept them on the terms of the gospel. That is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. And then he quotes here John 16. He says, Ask and ye shall receive. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. That's from Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And then him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out. John 6, verse 37. We should also consider an article which is found in a Washington newspaper. It was called The Globe. And it revealed this, that the volume which Sherman consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase a copy of the scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. So we see here that both Payne and Sherman were both trusting in the creator God who's revealed in the pages of the Bible. And without debate, they believe that this was the creator who gave us our unalienable rights. We should also consider the faith of Oliver Wolcott. He was a military general and the governor of Connecticut. Uh, This patriot who signed the Declaration of Independence once said this, and I quote him, It is most evident that this land is under the protection of the Almighty, and that we shall be saved not by our wisdom nor by our might, but by the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and almighty in his operations. Incredible. It was also in March of 1797 when Governor Oliver Wolcott, he published a proclamation which includes the following statement. He says, May God, who is the author of peace and lover of concord, restrain the rage and pride of warring nations and cause them to submit to righteous and equitable terms of peace and that all those to whom the ministration of the gospel of Christ Jesus is committed may be influenced by that spirit which the gospel is adapted to inspire, and that the effect of their ministration may be the advancement of the peaceful kingdom of the great Redeemer among mankind. Now, without debate, this does not sound like the words of a man who was a deist or an atheist or a racist or or the rest of it, right? Clearly, this was a man who was hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and not you know, just for the benefit of America, but also for the benefit of the world, that the kingdom of Christ would finally come to the earth. How about John Witherspoon? Uh, He was a clergyman who signed the Declaration of Independence, and he was also a ratifier of the U.S. Constitution and the president of Princeton. He didn't mince any words when he insists this, and I quote, He is the best friend to American liberty, who is the most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion, and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind, 
Whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. Or to put that in more modern vernacular here, Witherspoon is telling us here uh, that the person who is the enemy of God is simultaneously the enemy of our country as well as the enemy of liberty, uh, which is, again, based on the unalienable rights endowed to us by our Creator. And just to be clear uh, about the God that Witherspoon was referring to, we should consider what he meant when he declared, if you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you are not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. Wow. Incredible. John Witherspoon believed in the Creator who is revealed within the pages of the Holy Bible. And therefore, uh, when he and Oliver Wolcott Wolcott signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, they were most certainly trusting in the independence that's provided to us by the God of the Bible. Now, I could spend the rest of our time quoting many more of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. We could go back into their biographies and into their statements. uh, and, And we clearly see that the majority of these men truly believed in the God of the Bible, truly placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we have you know, so much more to cover. Uh, and so for the, take, the sake of, of time tonight, I just want to suffice to say this, that out of the 56 men who signed this historic document, 27 of them were seminary graduates. Seminary graduates. And according to one historian's research, 51 of the 56 signers held a Christian worldview. 51 out of the 56. Who, who, who do the public schools want you to focus on? The, the few that weren't. Oh, well, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, look, look at Jefferson. You know, they want you to focus on the ones that weren't. Meanwhile, ignoring the 51 who were Bible-believing Christians. And as we consider all this information, it's no wonder why in 1883, the Illinois Supreme Court insisted this, and I quote, Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. In this sense and to this extent, our civilizations and our institutions are emphatically Christian. Now, now if you go down to the University of Texas tonight and go talk to some of the historians down there, they're going to let you know this is not a Christian nation. Well, it's not any longer. But it was. But the historians today want to tell you, oh, no, no, we don't have a Christian heritage. We don't have separation of church and state all the way down. Actually, no. The Supreme Court there in Illinois, 1883, said our civilization and our institution is emphatically Christian. Now, in light of this judicial decree from the late 19th century, every Christian alive today should take some time to consider our responsibilities for helping to maintain our form of government, which best reflects the original intentions of our country's founding fathers. The reason why this is so important, it's summed up best by President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson once insisted this, he says, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today, nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been about. Yeah, that perfectly sums up (laughs) the American experiment today. We don't know where we're going tomorrow because we don't know who we are today because we have historically revised the foundations of this nation. 
that being the case, we should take a moment to better understand where we came from as a nation. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the prayer that was offered by Reverend Jacob Duchesne. And this was just before the very first uh, congressional meeting that that opened up on September 7th, 1774. Now, uh, Congress, you know, throughout all of history has opened up with prayer. And, you know, this is one of those prayers that was offered up September 7th, 1774. Uh, Reverend Duchesne prays this. He says, O Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. Now, you couldn't find this kind of prayer in most churches in America here in, in 2023. This is a prayer being prayed before Congress in 1774. And as we consider the content of this prayer, I should point out that you know, many of the signers of the Declaration were present when this prayer was offered. Many of the signers of our Declaration of Independence were there when this prayer was being offered to the high and mighty King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And listen, not one of those guys raised an objection. Not one of those guys said, well, hold on a second. What about the separation of church and state? Not one of those guys said, well, let's, let's be you know, a little bit more compassionate for the Muslims in the room or for the Mormons or for the Jehovah's Witnesses. What about coexistence? I mean, Bono would be very upset with this prayer right now. Reverend Duchesne concluded this congressional prayer by invoking the name that is above every name. And he did this by declaring, all this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior. This pastor wasn't appealing to the gods of coexistent universalism. No, instead he was praying to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and with no complaints from those sitting in Congress. And as the reverend acknowledged that the father of our Lord Jesus is the one who reigns supreme, and he says, he says that he reigns with, with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments, well, as we consider this, there should be no doubt that our country was founded by men who believed in the sovereign reign of the God that we find in the Bible. At the same time, I should also remind you of the warning that Benjamin Rush presented when he declared this. Again, he said, the only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. So they established it. They they, they set it up, our, our more perfect union. But then there's the problem of perpetuating it. Listen, if the only way to maintain our Republican form of government is to teach our kids the Bible, well, then you better believe that the best way to destroy our Republican form of government is to remove the Bible from our education system and replace it with studies in social Marxism like CRT and other such nonsense. And that's exactly what we've seen happen. And it's sad to say that this communist plan 
was put in place, you know, it, back in the 60s, and, and since then it's taken root here in our country. And just to be clear, it was 60 years ago, back in 1963, that's when Representative A.S. Herlong warned our Congress about the communist agenda to take over our country. And he included an excerpt from a book written by a former FBI agent named Cleon Scounson titled The Naked Communist. And this book actually includes 45 communist goals, most of which have already been accomplished. According to one, uh, uh, according to one expert, he says that uh, you know at least 90 percent of these 45 goals have been accomplished already. I want to uh, just consider a handful of these 45 communist goals that were introduced into Congress back in 1963. This includes the following goals. Number 29 is this. Discredit the American Constitution by calling it inadequate, old-fashioned, out of step with modern needs, a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. That's number 29. Number 30, discredit the American founding fathers. Present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. And, and I want to I look back at uh, number 15, which says this, capturing one or both of the political parties in the United States. Hmm. Without debate, the communist agenda has been accomplished over the last 60 years, and it's for this reason that both political parties now continue to move our country further and further away from the faith of our founding fathers. A little something called the Overton Window, you know, where you know, the, the, the politics here in our nation just continues to move to the left. We continue to move to the left. And it's not that the left keeps moving left and the right keeps holding strong to the right. Nope. Everything's just moving left. And, and, and the, the few anchors that there are in the so-called GOP, you know, most of them don't seem to be really interested in fighting the good fight. But there's a few holdouts, but they're, they're considered Nazis. You know, the alt-right Nazis, you know why? Well, because they still want to hold on to the Bible. They still want to hold on to, you know, just biblical truths and... and the old, the old ways and whatnot. But by and large, both parties have been captured. Both parties are, are involved in the fix. Just, just look at every time the debt ceiling's raised. Look at, look at every time you know, new funding is used for this or that. Just, both sides are just like, yeah, let's spend the money. So much for small government. We should also consider how their plan includes the goal to control the minds of every American with the following objectives. Number 17, that was introduced into Congress back in 63. Uh, get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum. Get control of teachers' associations. Put the party line in textbooks. Yep. Number 20, infiltrate the press. Get control of book review assignments, editorial writing, policy-making positions. Number 21, gain control of key positions in radio, TV, and motion pictures. 20, uh, 22, continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. An American communist cell was told to eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, substitute shapeless, awkward, and meaningless forms. Number 24, eliminate all laws governing obscenity by calling them censorship and a violation of free speech and free press. Number 25, break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and television. 
Number 26, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, and healthy. All this was on record with Congress 1963. And without debate, these objectives are well underway and are being accomplished here in our country. And it's sad to say that public schools and mainstream media outlets and the entire entertainment industry, they've all been infiltrated by those who are trying to accomplish this communist agenda. And that's why our motion pictures and our music and all these sorts of things, they all have the same basic brainwashing message. Put your pleasure first and don't worry about anything else. That's really what it boils down to. Hedonism. We should also consider the communist agenda to break up families with the following objectives. Number 39, dominate the psychiatric profession and use mental health laws as a means of gaining coercive control over those who oppose communist goals. Yeah, they're going to say you're crazy. If you're not in line with all of this stuff, you're the crazy one. You need some meds. Number 40, discredit the family as an institution, encourage promiscuity and easy divorce. Number 41, emphasize the need to raise children away from the negative influence of parents. Think about that for a moment. Attribute prejudices, mental blocks, and retarding of children to suppressive influence of parents. It's the parents' fault. There's something wrong with the kids. It's the parents' fault. It's not because you took the Bible out and, and brought sex ed in. No, that's, that's not the reason why. And if you say that's the reason why you're a bad parent, we've got to take, take your children away from you. Promiscuity, you know, is encouraged in public schools more and more every day. As a result, teenage pregnancy is more common than anyone wants to admit here in this country. And while many teenage moms are duped into aborting their babies by doctors who tell them, oh, it's just, a, it's just a clump of cells, don't worry. Others become single moms, you know, because they, they don't feel right about abortion, but yet the joker they hooked up with, he's too much of a punk to, to help raise the baby. Why? Well, because he wants to go and seek hedonism as well. And it's sad to say that you know, single-parent homes is, is one of the greatest determining factors that a child will end up in the prison system. It's tragic. And, and yet it's by design. We know that this has been the, the plan of the communists since 1963. And if this isn't bad enough, listen, parental rights are being diminished more and more every day. And as a result, many parents are afraid to discipline their kids. Why? For fear of CPS. Because if you actually discipline your kids in the way the Bible says to do it, they can call CPS. CPS comes and pulls them out of, of your house and gives your kids to somebody else. Psychiatrists and pediatricians can, can also then influence kids apart from parental observation. And now in some circumstances, these professionals can then require gender-affirming care regardless of the parent's opinion. 
And it's sad to say that many parents don't, don't see a problem with that at all. And if all this isn't bad enough, let's consider how the communist agenda then plans to control the church with the following objectives. Number 27, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. Number 28, eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principle of separation of church and state. Sadly, these goals are being accomplished without much pushback from Americans at all. And, and granted that, you know, I still think that there's a silent majority, you know, who would be opposed to all of these things. And the problem is they're silent because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to deal with the drama. They don't want to have, you know, you know a bad day tomorrow. They, they, they don't want to, have, want to have people looking at them weird. The silent majority is a majority, but they're silent. And as a result, the silent majority is slowly becoming a minority. You know, according to a recent Barna research poll, only 37% of U.S. pastors actually hold a biblical worldview. And I'm guessing this is being pretty generous. According to the same poll, 62% of U.S. pastors possess some sort of hybrid worldview known as syncretism. So yeah, the the majority of our churches here in the U.S., according to this poll, are being led by pastors who don't really believe the Bible. And as a result, many churches have embraced the cultural Marxism of this communist agenda. As we consider the current state of our nation, it's clear to me here that our nation has entered into a time of what I believe to be a national judgment from from the Lord. And and there's no doubt in my mind that God is giving us the leaders that our country deserves. I do believe that. I, I believe that we have the leaders that we deserve. And as a result, many of us are left wondering, well, is it hopeless? <laughs> is it over? You know, are, are we just waiting for the fire and brimstone now? Or, 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 is, or is there something that we can still do? Is there some way that we can still be effective here in, in this time of judgment? And with this question in mind, I want to take a moment to remind you about the mindset that led our founding fathers to stand against the tyranny of the enemy there in Great Britain. With this as the focus, I want to consider how the Declaration of Independence was based on a divine dependence that led them to seek the strength of our Savior. And I want to take another look at the Declaration of Independence, which which begins again in this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, according to the founding fathers of our country, our American freedom is based on a, a few important truths here. First of all, our freedom is based upon the belief that... God has created all people as equals. God has created all people as equals. And and therefore, if we're going to make an impact on the nation here in these last days, we need to remember here that our creator is the only one who can turn this around. We have to look back to our creator. Listen, you know, I get it. You know, some people like this candidate, some people like that candidate, and so on and so forth. Listen, rather than trusting in a candidate, rather than trusting in an election, 
and, and place that at, this is going to fix it. This is going to be the thing. This is, that's part of, part of our problem, Christian, is that we're looking to the wrong solutions. We need to look back to our creator. We didn't need to remember that the, the Declaration of Independence doesn't begin with George Washington is going to pull us out of this one. And No, they look to the Creator as the solution. It's also important for us to remember that our independence from tyranny was dependent upon the belief that all life is sacred. So, so not only do we believe that there's a Creator and that He is the one who gives us liberty, but that he is also the one who gives us life and, 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 and the pursuit of happiness. And, and therefore, because all people are created equal and, and are given these rights, well then, the church must defend the right of everyone, and yes, the living beings who are in the wombs of their mothers. It, it literally boggles my mind when I hear of Christians voting for pro-choice candidates. I'm just like, what? How can that be? There's a creator who has made all life equal, and there's life in the womb. Therefore, that life is equal to my life. And listen, if you come into my house and try to take my life, it's not going to be easy for you. I'm going to defend myself. Shouldn't I also then turn around and defense, defend the defenseless? Of course. And the church needs to get on board with this because I think that unbelievers are going to be unbelievers, but I think the Lord is going to hold the church to a higher standard and when it comes to this issue of protecting life, we better get on board with this and, and realize that we need to submit ourselves and, you know, to our creator and then turn around and defend the defenseless. Protecting the life in the womb. It's also important to remember what the psalmist said in the 33rd Psalm where he declares this. He says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. In other words, the nation that fails to depend on the divine guidance of God will also miss out on the many blessings that the Lord pours out on those who trust in him. And with that being the case, you know, the only hope that we have here in America is to help every person that, that we have influence over to realize that there is no life, there is no liberty, and there is no happiness apart from Jesus Christ. And, and the reason I say this is because Jesus is the only one who can provide us with everlasting life. He's the only one who can provide us with true spiritual liberty, freeing us from the bondage of our sinful nature. He's the only one who can bring us holy happiness. That the dangling carrot of hedonism will never actually provide us with life, liberty, and happiness. Only Jesus can. That being the case, I just want to present you with a three-point plan here which will help us to become bold and brave believers who are able to make an impact on the people within our sphere of influence. And to sum this up simply, the, the believers who are able to make an impact on our, on our community 
you know, we'll be Christians who are first committed to walking in the light of the Lord. That's what we've been called to be, is the light of the world, reflecting the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet too many Christians are hiding their light under the bushel basket, so to speak. Part of the problem with what's happening here in our country is that too many Christians are hiding the light. And what, what happens if there's, a, if, if, there's a, if there's a small number of Christians and a bunch of us are hiding our light, well then no wonder that darkness is winning. With that, I'll remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, it's verses 8 through 13 where he declares this, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Christian, listen, we can't really make an impact on the spiritual darkness of this wicked world if we're also hiding our own light. In order to affect the spiritual darkness here in our country, we have to be the spiritual light that the Lord has called us to become. And so rather than attempting to team up with unbelievers who seem to share our political point of view because that's how we got to make it work, no, 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 no. The Lord never called us to go team up with unbelievers who happen to be on the conservative side you know, to try to make God's will done. You know, no, no, we don't need to, light doesn't need to work with darkness to accomplish light. We simply need to walk in the light. And, and we need to, to use the truth of God's word to expose evil deeds of darkness. With this as the goal, I encourage you simply walk as children of light. Uh, and as we walk as children of light, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. I get it, you know, if, if you're thinking it's a numbers game and numbers has to, has to be the you know, determining factor in politics and these sort of... No. <laughs> Show me the Bible verse and I'll believe it. But don't tell me you've worked it out in your mind. I've watched it not work for too many years now. And yet Christians keep going right back to it. I asked Norm Geisler before he died, hey, when are, when are we going to get serious about starting an actual Christian political party and, and, and quit messing around with, you know, working together with this group and that group and all these unbelievers don't, who don't really follow Jesus. And he convinced me, well, he didn't convince me, he told me, he tried to convince me that it wouldn't work. Okay. I, I, I tend to think that, you know, our creator, you know, uh, is able to work miracles. Remember the whole revolutionary war thing? Complete miracle. Outnumbered, outgunned, and yet, America won. Go team, go. We don't need the numbers on our side. We need to be on the side of Jesus Christ. We need to walk in his light. Sadly, those who are truly walking in the light of the Lord, well, we quickly become unpopular. Like you're probably thinking, when is this guy going to shut up tonight? You know, like, I get it. Most people don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't care. <laughs> I honestly don't. 
I'm going to tell you what I think God's telling me to tell you, and you can deal with him whether you like it or not. But those who are truly walking in the light of the Lord will quickly become unpopular with people on both sides of the political aisle. When I'm talking to to the people on the left, they get upset with me, and when I'm talking to the people on the right, they get upset with me too. And it's for this reason that we must learn how to be content. So we need to be committed to walking in the light. We also need to be content with what the Lord provides for us. The, the, the Christian who wants to be committed to walking in the light of the Lord must learn to be content with the perfect provisions of the Lord because we will become very unpopular. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that uh, we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Christian, listen, nothing will derail a disciple of Christ like the idolatrous pursuit of worldly wealth. And while I do believe that we've been called to work for the income that that we need, I also believe that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's this love of worldly wealth that has caused many Christians to stray from the faith in their greediness. As a matter of fact, the love of money keeps many Christians from sharing their faith at work because they're afraid they're going to get fired. And I don't mean to suggest that you should just go to work and share your faith all day long. You need to go to work and be a good employee. But if you're hiding your faith at work for fear that you, know, you might not get the promotion or you might get a demotion or you might get fired and these sorts of things, I, I point you back to our creator. He's a big God. You can, you can accomplish his will and he'll keep you where he needs you. Trust it. And yet it's the love of money that leads many Christians to, to churches where the pastor also loves money because then that confirms their idolatry. Yeah, they would rather go to a church you know, where the pastor is saying, go get your money, come get your blessing. It's all about you know, wealth and health and all this kind of stuff. And it's the same love of money that keeps these pastors from preaching the complete counsel of God's word. You see, they realize that if they actually teach the whole counsel of God's word, there's going to be many who leave the church. I see it every Sunday. People just popping up and out the doors, like, never see them again. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know, I know the, the formula. Like, I've looked at enough prosperity preachers who have mega churches to understand the formula. It's very simple. Smile a lot, never say anything convicting, and always tell people they're just right on. And, and you say that over and over again. You just you know, tell different stories about, you know, that, that support that same narrative. And, and the seats will be filled and budgets are blowing up. And the formula is easy. But then comes that thought, you're going to stand before God one day and give an account. Yeah... I'd rather be poor and go to heaven <laughs> and say, I did what I thought you said I, I should do, right? 
Listen, we need to learn how to be content. I've seen discontentment take out pastors that were solid, and then they just they wanted a bigger church. They, they wanted a, a bigger congregation. They, and next thing you know, they're falling. We need to be content. You see, being content helps us to fight the good fight of faith. And, and in order to make my case, let's consider the instructions that Paul goes on to make here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The very next thing he says after, after telling us to, to quit chasing after money, right? He goes on to say this, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, uh, now when we talk about these verses in their context, Paul is simply saying here, let's learn to be content with what we have so that we can spend more time fighting the good fight of faith. So it's not a matter of contentment, uh, you know, just, just becoming complacent. Don't, don't, don't think of contentment as being complacent, you know, being a complacent uh, Christian who isn't really doing anything. No, there's stuff to do. We're, we're to fight the good fight of faith. But if the pursuit is for worldly wealth, then chances are we're not going to be fighting the good fight of faith. Paul's encouraging us to set aside our greedy desire for personal gain so that then we can spend more money engaging in the great commission of Christ Jesus. And this brings us to our third point of application. And now with this as the focus, I'd like to consider the great commission found in Matthew chapter 28. Beginning in the middle of verse 18, there our risen Redeemer declares this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make money of all... Oh, sorry. That's not what it says at all. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting his disciples with the perfect plan for actually changing the world. This was the plan that changed the world in the first century. This is the still, still the same plan that will change the world today. Jesus didn't go and say, find some winsome, charismatic, good-looking, sort of young, almost old people, you know, and, and get them into political office. And then I can usher in my kingdom. Didn't say it. He said, you go make disciples. And, and I, I get it. It's easier to go cast a ballot, think that we did something, and, and, and then wait for the political leaders to fix everything, and, and then complain about them when nothing got fixed, right? That, that, man, that's so easy. It's hard to say, you know, I'm going to spend a portion of my day today looking for an unbeliever to go witness to. That's hard. And knowing that it's difficult to make converts, to lead people to Jesus Christ, I know that's, that's hard work. And yet it's for this reason that I encourage you to seek the strength of the Holy Spirit so that we can become Christians who are committed to walking in the light, content with what we have, and, and, and therefore ready to accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I, I know it works because, listen, before I, uh, before I came to Christ in 1995, I was pro-choice, pot-smoking, porno-addicted, alcoholic Democrat. 
That's what I was. And I was only interested in freedom insofar as I was free to do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted to do it. And it was like, Bill Clinton smoked pot, man, that's awesome. My kind of president, you know, that's, that's how I thought about politics back then. Then someone convinced me to vote for George W. Bush, and it changed my life. <laughs> Fixed everything in my heart. I was born again. Then that, that's stupid, right? And yet, how many conservatives talk about Trump in this way? Oh, yeah. He's, I, there's actually a book that points to Trump as the promised Messiah. There's a guy that literally wrote a book that tells us that Trump is the, the, the king of kings. And it's like, really? Really? Yeah, really. I'll send you a copy later if you need it. Now, a friend didn't convince me to become a voter of George Bush. He helped me to see the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I considered my sins against the backdrop of our Savior's holiness, I knew that I was guilty. I knew that the Lord could cast me into the fires of hell, and it would be just fine. And it was at that moment when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and I was born again. It was at that moment when I received the free gift of God's forgiveness, and as a result, the Lord has given me everlasting life, spiritual liberty, and holy happiness. From the mosh pit to the pulpit, the Lord has transformed my life, helping me to become more and more and more like him until I become the perfect Republican. And uh, <laughs> but, I, but I have, I, you know, I, I went you know, from being a Democrat to being a Republican to becoming an independent, realizing that you know, the communists have invaded both parties. And it's important for us to understand that our founding fathers wanted to bring our country to a complete dependence on the king of kings. That's really what American independence is all about. A a complete reliance and dependence upon the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he alone is the one who can give us true life, true liberty, and true happiness. If you want to see things turn around here in America as I do, trust me when I tell you that this is the message that will turn things around. The, the Lord is calling us to engage in a grassroots revolution. It will not happen from the White House down. This sort of revolution will happen in our country when Christians get serious about the Great Commission, when we finally realize we need to walk in the light and be committed to walking in the light, we need to be content with what we have so that we can get back to the business of the Great Commission. And in the business of the Great Commission, I pray that my testimony 
happens over and over and over again with all these different converts. Because listen, when I converted to, to the Christian faith, crime in Austin dropped by 20%. Some hyperbole, but listen, there was a change that happened in Austin when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was a change that happened in Austin when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And if we continue to lead more and more and more people to Jesus Christ, guess what? Crime continues to drop. Love continues to increase. This really is the solution. And politics is just downstream from the culture. If you want to change the world of politics, which I'm all for, well, it happens when the culture gets changed. That's what the communists figured out back in the 60s. And that's what they've been working on this whole time. It's time for the church to get back to this, get back to the grassroots efforts of reaching the lost, leading them to Christ, and encouraging them to walk in the light of the Lord. And in this, we can help them to understand we have a divine dependence on the Lord because he's the one who can give us life, liberty, and happiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,